So let's light our chalice. As you know, um, Hope Church is officially closed, uh, but we will have services online until we open again. Let's start with a poem by Mary Oliver, Morning at Blackwater. For years, every morning, I drank from Blackwater Pond. It was flavored with oak leaves and also, no doubt, the feet of ducks. And always it assuaged from the dry bowl of the very far past. What I want to say is that the past is the past. And the present is what your life is. And you are capable of choosing what that will be, darling citizen. So come to the pond, or the river of your imagination, or the harbor of your longing, and put your lips to the world and live your life. I have a reading, some prose by Mary Oliver, uh, called Wordsworth Mountain, and it comes from Long Life, and uh, which is full of both prose and poems. There is a rumor of total welcome among the frosts of the winter morning. Beauty has its purpose, which all our lives and at every season, it is our opportunity and our joy to divine. Nothing outside ourselves makes us desire to do so. The questions and the striving toward answers comes from within. The field I'm looking at is perhaps 20 acres, although long and broad. The sun has not yet risen, but is sending its first showers over the mountains, a kind of rehearsal, a slant light with even a golden cast. I do not exaggerate. The light touches every blade of frozen grass, which then burns as a particular, as well as a part of the general view. The still upright weeds have become wands, encased in a temporary shirt of ice and light. Neither does this first light miss the opportunity of the small pond or the groups of pine trees. And now, enough of silver, behold the pink, even a vague, unsurpassable flush of pale green. It is the performance of this hour only, the dawning of the day, fresh and ever new. This is to say nothing against afternoons, evenings, or even midnight. Each has its own portion of the spectacular. But dawn, dawn is a gift. Much is revealed about a person by his or her passion or indifference to this opening of the door of the day. Wordsworth, though he did not think so on the summer evening, was a lucky boy. I, in my hut of leaves, was a lucky girl. Something touched between us and the universe. It does not always happen. 
But if it does, we know forever where we live, no matter where we sleep or eat our dinner, or sit at table and write words on paper. And we might, in our lives, have many thresholds, many houses to walk out from and view the stars, or to turn and go back to for warmth and company. But the real one, the actual house, not of beams and nails, but of existence itself, is all of Earth, with no door, no address separate from oceans or stars, or from pleasure or wretchedness either, of hope or weakness or greed. How wonderful that the universe is beautiful in so many places and in so many ways. But also, the universe is brisk and businesslike, and no doubt does not give its delicate landscapes or its thunderous displays of power and perhaps perception too, for our sake or our improvement. Nevertheless, its intonations are our best tonics, if we would take them, for the world is full of radiant suggestion. For whatever reason, the heart cannot separate the world's appearances and actions from morality and valor, and the power of every idea is intensified, if not actually created, by its expression in substance. Over and over in the butterfly, we see the idea of transcendence. In the forest, we see not the inert, but the aspiring. In water that departs forever and forever returns, we experience eternity. Today's sermon is titled Mary Oliver's Conversion. How did this poet pray, Mary Oliver? Let's listen into her poem, Thirst. Another morning, and I wake with thirst for the goodness I do not have. I walk out to the pond, and all the way God has given us such beautiful lessons. I was never a quick scholar, but sulked and hunched over my books past the hour and the bell. Grant me, in your mercy, a little more time. Love for the earth and love for you are having such a long conversation in my heart. Who knows what will finally happen or where I will be sent, yet already I have given a great many things away, expecting to be told to pack nothing except the prayers which, with this thirst, I am slowly learning. This prose poem, these, these deliberations of the heart, betray a conversion experience that led Oliver back to church after the death of her partner of 40 years, Molly Malone Cook, who died in 2005. Note that Oliver takes the initial step to effect change, to find the holy. I walked out to the pond. It is not that the spirit of life isn't everywhere. It's that blinded by our vanities, we have not eyes to see, 
to quote the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. So much of spirituality is waking up to what is already before us, showing up for the life that is already ours, stirring up the passions that can become dormant through neglect, and meeting ourselves again as if for the very first time. In this context, being born again is a useful metaphor rather than a dogmatic imperative. It is an invitation to vibrancy and renewal. Oliver presents in her prayer poem a void in her life, a thirst for the goodness I do not have. Note that this quest for fullness comes on just another day. Often the clarion calls on our lives seem to come out of nowhere, yet they also come with the certainty that this is the day to step out of the familiar and into uncharted territory. It is something we cannot help but do. This is a theme found throughout Oliver's body of work. In her poem, The Journey, she writes, One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you feel the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. What is it? that you have to do, not what you want to do, not what you should be doing, not what you fantasize about in the deepest recesses of your mind, but what you must do. This is the question posed by Oliver in another poem called Summer Day that has stayed with me from my first encounter. Her question, tell me, what is it you plan to do? with your one wild and precious life. I often tell prospective ministers that if there is indeed a calling on their lives, it will not let go of them easily, maybe not at all. A genuine call is gentle, never pushy, but its sense of direction and purpose will resurface throughout one's life offering glimpses of glory and revelations of knowing that border on the ecstatic. For following our call in life frees us from the fears of life, the guilt of failure, and the regrets of avoidance and insecurity. What is left is joy, joy unspeakable. The Oliver poem, first days, pinpoints the ecstasy that cannot be quieted when genuine change takes place in our lives, when, as the poet says, we are finally done with all unnecessary things. In that poem, Oliver tells the divine, I would run for you, loving the miles for your sake. I would climb the highest tree just to be that much closer. Think about it. For whom or what would you run the last mile and not be weary? What is the activity or vocation or cause or belief that energizes rather than depletes you? What mountains in your life are worth climbing even when you do not know what lies at the top? 
What part of your life is immune to the voices of critics and their bad advice, those hell-bent on conformity for your one wild and precious life? You know what to do, Oliver says. You know what to do. I've used this illustration before, but it really encapsulates this, this way of knowing. When my husband Stillman and I began to form our family through adoption, friends and acquaintances were at first happy for us. Some questioned whether two men could provide for the needs of the preschooler we were first took into our home, Alan. Most, however, saw this act as compassionate, even if it was a little foolish. Most of the callings in our lives necessitate the spirit of the fool to see them to fruition. When Alan's newborn biological brother, David, arrived at our doorsteps, the quick critics quickly raised their concerns. What do you guys know about raising a baby? Will you really get up at night to feed him? But like Oliver, we knew what we had to do. This was the only chance for both boys to be family together. Once two sons became three, with the addition of Arthur, and then three became five, thanks to the precious homecoming of Javante and Deontay, well, the critics were out in full force. What had begun as a righteous idea had now become an unreasonable endeavor. We had gone too far, crossed the line from sanity to insanity. I'm not saying they weren't right, but like Oliver, we knew what we had to do, knew how we were to live this one wild and precious life. When you order your life based on your own experiences and convictions, when you respond bravely to the still small voice within, when you take a walk to the pond and connect with your life's purpose, a strange, perhaps unfamiliar desire overwhelms the heart according to Oliver. You become keenly aware of the time you have lost by living up to the expectations of others. In the prayer poem titled Thirst, Oliver pleads, grant me in your mercy a little more time. Love for the earth and love for you are having such a long conversation in my heart. When the joy of life finally arrives and the spirit of life abides, we want to rest in them, wrestle with them, and share them with those who could use their healing touches. The rush and worry of busy work is replaced with the promise and fulfillment of soul work, and its eternal significance is no longer lost on us. Simply put, we would like more time for the joy to continue. Then Oliver presents the holy with the requisite attitude that it, we, all of us must possess if we are to experience transformation, if we are to answer the call on our lives. It is not enough just to walk to the pond, though that's a good place to start. It is not enough to awake ourselves and show up for life. It is not enough to know what it is we must do and desire more time in which to do it. 
we must also give up control. Says Oliver in the poem Thirst, who knows what will finally happen or where I will be sent. Yet already I have given a great many things away, expecting to be told to pack nothing except the prayers which, with this thirst, I am slowly learning. This is what most often keeps folks from living their best lives now. It is a lack of faith, a lack of faith in others, in the inherent goodness of humanity, in the existence of that which we cannot experience with the five senses, and in the universalist promise that all things will eventually grow into harmony with the divine. But the greatest deficiency is also the most dangerous. We may simply lack faith in ourselves. Many of us have a need to lead linear lives, ordering our steps and planning each milestone as if our lives depended on it. We often base our actions on the outcomes we perceive as logical and in our best interests. But do we ever consider whether we are truly happy? Whether our thirst for greater meaning and purpose has been met? Do we plan mostly to avoid potential pain rather than to achieve active participation in serendipitous joy? Contrast this approach to Oliver's journey without a destination in her poem, Thirst, or into the immediacy of the moment when it is time to let go, which she describes in the poem, one or two things. The god of dirt came up to me many times and said so many wise and delectable things. I lay on the grass listening to his dog voice, crow voice, frog voice. Now, he said, and now, and never once mentioned forever. For Oliver, where we end up is not the goal, whether in the realm of life or in the realm of the spirit. Neither is it as significant how we will get there, or even if we'll arrive. It doesn't occur to her to weigh all her options, project possible outcomes, design a timeline, and evaluate her progress. Instead, she listens while lying in the grass and here's the refrain, now, and again, now. For now is the only realm that eternity knows. Written after her conversion, the, propo the prose poem, Six Recognitions, again echoes the words of the one she has chosen to follow. She writes, oh, feed me this day, spirit of love, with the fragrance of the fields, and this freshness of the oceans which you have made, and help me to hear and to hold in all dearness those exacting and wondrous words of the holy, saying, follow me. In the same poem, Oliver speaks of life after transformation and the faith that knows all will be well. She writes, everywhere I go, I am treated like royalty, which I am not. I thirst and am given water. My eyes thirst and I am given the white lilies on the black water. 
What will it take for us to be so sure of the present that we have no fear of what the future will bring? It just may take a walk to the pond where, as Holy Writ advised, let the animals teach you. Cut off from their cacophony, blinded to their self-reliance, and confounded by their commitment to this moment and only this moment. We cannot see the forests for the trees in our own lives. Let the animals teach you. You see, no house of worship can hold the glory of creation within its four walls, for Oliver at least. And she returned often to the ponds and the fields, the woods and the meadows, to the places where God's feet pass, to quote the hymn, Morning Has Broken. For most of her life, Oliver worshipped at nature's temple, and not unlike Ralph Waldo Emerson, found a divine energy often absent within the confines of bricks and mortar, yet fully present within us and within the natural world. In her Sabbath poem, The Fawn, Oliver describes another encounter with the divine energy that leaves her wondering, as all true transformations surely do. Sunday morning, and mellow as precious metal, the church bells rang out, but I went to the woods instead. A fawn, too new for fear, rose from the grass and stood with its spots blazing. And knowing no way but words, no trick but music, I sang to him. He listened. His small hooves struck the grass. Oh, what is holiness? The fawn came closer, walked to my hands, to my knees. I did not touch him. I only sang, and when the doe came back calling out to him dolefully, and he turned and followed her into the trees, still I sang not knowing how to end such a joyful text, until the far-off bells once more tipped and tumbled and rang through the morning, announcing the going forth of the blessed. Note that the fawn not only listens to Oliver's singing, it responds to it by striking its hooves against the grass. This now moment, this momentary relationship between poet and animal introduces the central line of the poem and asks the question we must each ask ourselves if transformation is what we truly seek. Oh, what is holiness? The answer implicit in the poem and in all of Oliver's work is that this moment is holy. It's the only thing that's holy. It is all that ever holy. In the mantra of Oliver's God of Dirt, who speaks in its dog voice, its crow voice, its frog voice, now, now, it is the only time and place wherein transformation takes place. The holiness that results in the meeting of fawn and poet, includes a revelation of the divine. Something holy is present in this moment. 
to use the language of Martin, Martin Buber, it is the revelation between poet and faun, in the revelation between poet and faun, they also meet the eternal vow. A third party is present. How do we transform ourselves and our circumstances in order to live our best lives now? It begins not with a plan, but with a prayer, even a prayerful walk to the pond. It takes place in the moment, even as we utter words of which we are unsure. It transpires the moment we know what we have to do and then do it, never mind the critics. It take hold, takes hold when we thirst for the goodness we do not have. It takes us home when we no longer worry where we are going or how we will get there. It takes faith. We close with another excerpt from the poem Summer Day, which reminds us all that we do not need to be spiritual to experience the grace of the world and the touch of the universe. May it guide us in all our miraculous moments. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life to the glory of life? And finally, our closing words, our benediction, are for Mary Oliver. The poem is Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and in the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Go in peace and be a blessing until we meet again. <laughs>